several years ago, as a young man, I was sleeping when God spoke to me. Arise, Jonah. Go to Nineveh, that great city. Preach to the people. Their wickedness has come up to me. Warn them to turn from their sins. You're listening to Wiretap with Jonathan Goldstein on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Today's episode, Jonah and the Great Fish. By all accounts, long before Jonah was swallowed by the big fish, he had always been a little off. It worried his brother Vito. Vito was the brother who left the womb first. I should have left a note in there, he'd say. Stay put. This whole outside world thing? Not for you. For you, it will only be delusions and disappointments. As children, when eating lunch with their schoolmates, Vito was always quick to stomp Jonah's foot under the table to shut him up when he started babbling inappropriately, saying things like, I wonder what angels' feet smell like. As they grew older, Vito always kept Jonah close by his side to make sure he did not embarrass the family's good name with inanities. You are his brother, said Vito's mother before her death. You must help Jonah find a suitable wife so he can make a family. A pious woman, she wore her babushka tied so tight around her head she had to speak through gritted teeth. The old woman lived and breathed for her boys. She worried for them as though worry was mystical work, a positive force that moved the planets. Don't worry, Ma, Vito had assured her, her shrunken little head in his big, hairy hands. With God as my witness, I will make sure that Jonah finds a wife. Carrying out his mother's wishes was difficult. Vito knew many women, and he set Jonah up on date after date, each one more disastrous than the last. Toga sleeves catching fire, stubbed toes, swarms of cicadas. At night, Vito felt the burden of his promise lay heavily on his chest. It pressed down upon him with such insistence he feared he might wake up one morning under his bed, under the earth, impish little men prodding him with their pointy goat horns. The first time Jonah heard God, he was reluctant to tell Vito, for his brother was always accusing him of spewing gibberish. But eventually, Jonah gathered his nerve and confessed. In 40 days, Jonah said meekly, God is going to destroy Jerusalem. This was all Vito needed. As it was, he was always antsy when Jonah was around, worried he'd say something embarrassing. But this destroying Jerusalem stuff was really out there. Don't say you heard God, Vito corrected. Say you think you heard God. There's a difference. I think I'm pretty sure about it, though, said Jonah. Well, what did he sound like, Vito asked. It wasn't even an actual voice, Jonah said. It was more like a feeling I got. Okay, so you feel like you think you heard God, said Vito. I guess so, said Jonah. And so when Jonah told people the news about Jerusalem, Vito would follow behind, jumping in with, he only thinks he felt he heard God. 
Maybe. Then Jonah would stop prophesying altogether. Still, news of Jonah's prophecy got around. People spoke of the inappropriate man from Gath who had heard God foretell of Jerusalem's doom. The news made the rounds and Jerusalemites began to repent, just in case, because you could never be too sure of when the end was nigh. But after a few weeks, with Jerusalem doing better than ever, people stopped repenting and started kibitzing. Oh sure, your brother heard God, they said to Vito. The only problem is, God lied to him. Vito would shake his head and try to laugh in a way that said, you win some, you lose some. But instead, he laughed in a way that said, I am sweating and humiliated. Jonah was on his way to becoming a laughingstock, and Vito was going down with him. Years later, when God came to him a second time, Jonah tried to ignore the Lord, giving no external sign he'd heard. Go to Nineveh, the voice commanded. Warn the citizens there that if in forty days they do not change their ways, they will be destroyed. All the while, Jonah twiddled his beard as though pondering what he might eat for lunch. When God's voice finally stopped, he ran to tell Vito what had happened. Again with the forty days, Vito said. Look, this time, let's just sit tight and wait and see. Jonah was to learn that God was not one for waiting and seeing. For really, what was the point of prophesying something that's already happened? And so Jonah was dogged by the Lord. When he went for a walk, the earth spoke out to him. Nineveh, the earth hissed. He could feel the voice vibrating beneath his feet. Don't listen to the earth, said Vito, when Jonah told him. The earth isn't your brother. I'm your brother. But when the earth did not shut up, Vito suggested Jonah take to the water. Adventures on the open sea will do you good, said Vito. And who knows, maybe you'll even meet a wife. The idea of letting his brother wander off on his own made Vito's heart sick. Who would stomp his foot when he said things that were not appropriate? Jonah was going to float off into the world like a lonely little feather, but Vito had to let him go. The line between prophet and false prophet is an almost invisible one, thought Vito. Let God besmirch someone else's name. And so Jonah set out to hide from the Lord. Being on his own allowed his mind to drift in new directions. Allowed to flex its muscle, his imagination became fierce and powerful. If Vito was to be believed, and Jonah trusted he was, Jonah had always been half-crazy. Being half-crazy made him uneasy, because he was never sure which side of him was the crazy side and which was the normal side. So he said things like, fifteen silver shekels for an ox might be a bit pricey, with the same trepidation that he said, quicksand might be a gateway to the center of the earth a place where rainbows are stored. On the road, Jonah stopped caring which side of him was crazy and which was not, and as a result, his craziness blossomed, went from being the kind that chews the flesh of the fingertips to being the kind that beats the chest and summons God. After several days on the road, Jonah came to the edge of the water, it was here that he saw a docked ship. 
To where is this ship sailing? asked Jonah of a nearby sailor. He received no response, which for Jonah was par for the course. In fact, a simple task such as buying a chicken at the market took up an entire afternoon with excuse me sirs and I beg your pardons, so he simply walked on board. As they sailed along, Jonah learned through overheard snatches of conversation that the boat was set for Tarshish, a small northern country along the coast. He settled into a corner of the boat and fell asleep, but when he awoke, suddenly, hours later, everything was topsy-turvy. The sailors ran from stern to bow in the midst of a terrible storm. Jonah watched the action from a crouch, trying to keep out of the way. The sailors had never seen such a storm. They knew God was trying to tell them something. The Lord seems to be trying to kill us, but for a reason, said one of the sailors. Maybe he is only trying to kill one of us, said another. And so it was decided that lots would be drawn to figure out who God was trying to kill. It was while passing around the little colored stones that Jonah was finally noticed. You there, yelled a sailor. From where did you come? I've been here since we left, stammered Jonah. Remember? I even said hi to you. It was no surprise to anyone that the lots pointed to Jonah. Jonah looked from one sailor to the next as though to say, Lots, the things they say. Before he knew it, Jonah was being thrown overboard into the water where he sank beneath the waves, right into a large gaping mouth. Wet and shivering in the darkness of the fish belly, Jonah assessed the success of his existence. He left behind no belongings, no words to be remembered by, and no children. Since he was a child, Jonah always felt like he was being overlooked, like somehow he didn't exist, not in the same way that other people seemed to. He often worried that maybe he'd only been born with half a soul, a condition that caused him to fade in and out of being. Jonah often imagined that if he were a horse fit for the slaughter, he'd be brought to the slaughterhouse along with all the other slaughter horses, and then, at the time of slaughtering, he would be forgotten. One by one, all the horses would be killed, and he would stand in line with the rest of them, waiting for the fatal blow that would never come. Eventually, he would edge towards the door, he would expect to feel a tap on the shoulder, someone's, perhaps Babylonian, voice saying, where do you think you're going? But no such voice would come. He'd make it to the door just fine, then pass the door, and then wander back into town, a horse half dead, limping through the streets, past the women putting their laundry up and the boys playing ball. He would wind his way through the narrow streets, completely unnoticed, not dead, worse than dead. His brother Vito was always noticed. He was underlined all in capitals. Vito would have looked that fish in the face and said, oh no, you're not swallowing me. Keep on swimming, fatso. But with Jonah, that fish must have seen only water, maybe some kelp, but no human. Just as he'd heard that people who jump from cliffs often die of fright before hitting the ground, he now feared that he might die of embarrassment before being digested. 
Perhaps I can slide out between the teeth like a thread of celery, he thought. But even if I could, what then? I would immediately drown. No, I am better off sitting tight, waiting and seeing. Jonah imagined his dead parents floating in the sky, watching him through the fish's spurt hole. His mother had always been a fan of waiting and seeing. She would take comfort in seeing that, despite being in the belly of a fish, her son had been raised right. For his father, though, there would be no comfort. Amadai was a man of action, the kind of guy who would have cracked his own arm off and stabbed his way out with the jagged end. Vito and his dead father were birds of a feather. His dead father was probably gnashing his teeth over this one. How sad to be dead and forced to watch over this boring little nincompoop, his father must have been thinking. Let's go see what Vito's doing. Vito's always up to something good. Amadai had died when Jonah was still young. One of his only memories of his father was from an afternoon long ago when Amadai had suggested Vito and Jonah pluck dandelions in a field near their house to make a bouquet for their mother. But Jonah had been afraid to pull the flowers from the earth. He couldn't say why, then or now. There was just something about the yanking, the way the flower seemed to resist, the force and decisiveness it took to free it from the ground. It filled him with horror. Every time he tried to pull one out, he became weak and nauseous. What is wrong with you, asked Amadai. Jonah sat amid the weeds. He couldn't answer. He wanted his brain to be different. He wanted his father to leave him be. He looked down and ran the palm of his hand along the tops of the flowers, knowing that his father was up there, looking down at him. Jonah went on moving his hand through the flowers, embarrassed to be alive. On his second day inside the fish, Jonah awoke, pretending, for the sake of his dead parents, to be oddly invigorated. He looked around with his hands on his hips. Then he slapped his hands together like a camp counselor. I am good at being in a fish, he said. Better than most. Then he swallowed back the date-sized lump of vomit-tasting tears in his throat. Hello, what's this? asked Jonah, scraping purplish jelly from off the inside wall of the fish. Some sort of wild berry? It was, in fact, a clump of cysts. Praise God, who in his infinite kindness brings his loyal earthlings mana, even in the bowels of a fish. Jonah ate a teaspoon's worth of the purple slime and choked back another teardrop of barf. As the days passed, Jonah wrapped his body in seaweed to protect himself from the fish stomach's amino acids. He made himself a seaweed purse to protect the half-digested herring he'd find floating around him. When the purse and the body wrap match, he said, it really makes the whole ensemble. But as hard as he tried to will himself to think otherwise, living in a big fish was not a life at all. Finally, on his fourth day inside the giant beast, Jonah dropped his herring purse and gave in to despair. In the darkness, with tiny pink balled-up fists, he gently pounded the great fish's uterus and wept. Anything is better than living in a fish, sobbed Jonah. I want to get out. I want to get out now. 
And as he repeated these words, a rumbling stirred inside the creature. It made Jonah's teeth vibrate. He felt himself being enveloped, squeezed, and then finally barfed out onto the land. Jonah lay on the shore, panting, watching the great fish through squinting eyes as it swam off into the sun-dappled sea. He was much roomier than he looked, wept Jonah. He wiped the fish mucus and whatnot from his face, rose to his feet, and took a deep breath. He knew what he had to do. Which way is Nineveh, he asked the first person who passed. And not only did this person hear what he said, he also gave excellent directions. Outside in the light of day, Jonah realized that the fish's digestive juices had turned all of his hair white. It made him look like a real prophet. Jonah's arrival in Nineveh was met with great ceremony. News of his having been swallowed by a fish preceded him and made everything he said seem imbued with particular import and pizzazz. And so when Jonah informed the citizens of Nineveh that the Lord was interested in doing them in, they repented. And in this way, Nineveh was spared from destruction. When Jonah got back from Nineveh, he seemed different, and not just because of the white hair. He was now able to speak without gagging on his own words. No one really cared about the failed Jerusalem prophecy anymore either. Most questions people had revolved around the fish, and Jonah enjoyed answering. Vito, on the other hand, did not care much for fish stories. He worried that Jonah was now even less normal, and no matter how much he forced Jonah to scrub, he could still smell seafood. Who will have him now, Vito fretted, a bumbling grandfatherly type who reeks of sardines. Now more than ever, Vito believed his brother needed a wife to help settle him down, and so he set about arranging dates, dates that he would chaperone. He went through his mental Rolodex. There was Ruth of Assyria, Lydia of the Locust Thighs. Eventually, a bride would have to be found. Jonah's first date was with a shepherd's daughter, Cheryl of the wet wool odor. Before they left home, Vito coached his brother. Now, I don't want you starting off every sentence with the thing about living in a fish, because that could become a social crutch. Nevertheless, Jonah couldn't resist. You'd be surprised by how much there was to do in there, he told Cheryl. Scooping stuff, pulling goo from my ears, good hygiene kept my spirits mighty. At that, Vito stomped Jonah's foot. Jonah let out a high-pitched shriek, and Cheryl leapt from the table and ran off, wondering all the way home why she had not married the nice lamp salesman from Canaan, whose virtues her mother extolled. The other thing about being inside a great fish is that you never feel lonely, said Jonah to his 16th blind date. That's because there's always someone around you. Okay, that's fine, spat Vito. You were swallowed by a great fish. You got a certificate and a handshake from the King of Gath. Get over it. You call it being swallowed by a fish, replied Jonah. I call it achieving oneness with God. God thinks you're an idiot, said Vito. In this way, the dates continued, and so too did Jonah's descriptions of life in the fish. I made good use of the time, writing a memoir, 
the book of Jonah. It's all up here, he said, tapping his finger to the side of his head. Contrary to what Vito might have feared, Jonah and his stories were popular. Back then, being swallowed by a great fish was something like being abducted by a UFO. Women and men alike were drawn to Jonah and his tales. Still, Vito didn't like it. All he wanted for his brother was normalcy. As Jonah spun tales, Vito sat drumming his fingers and rolling his eyes. The fish and I became really close, said Jonah to a woman known as Lily of the Contradictory Remark. She was date number 53, and Vito was losing hope. I can't take it anymore, exploded Vito. Four days, four lousy days he was in there. There's more to my brother than that. Should he be branded for life? He is just like everybody else. Oh, on the contrary, said Lily. I think being swallowed by a big fish makes a person pretty special. Turning to Jonah, she continued, You have seen something that no one else has seen. I want to hear about it. Every detail you can remember. Lily's eyes were large and smiley. We sank to the bottom of the sea, said Jonah, and out of the fish's eyes I saw where Moses and the children of Israel had marched across the ocean's floor. I saw their footprints stamped into the mud. Lily moved her hand to the top of Jonah's hand. He tried not to think about it too much, because to think about it too much would make him tongue-tied, and he wanted to keep talking. Talking made him feel strong, and it kept Lily's touch from crushing his heart. Sometimes you resign yourself to a certain fate, Jonah said, looking at her, unsure of himself. But then that fate changes. It takes getting used to. I was invisible my whole life until I fell into that fish's mouth. If it hadn't have been for dumb luck, I'd still be invisible. I don't think it was dumb luck, Lily said. In the very beginning, when God created the universe, he created the big fish too. He made you invisible to keep you safe and protected so that one day you could meet the fish and become more visible than anyone else. You were saved so Nineveh could be saved, and maybe also, she continued trepidatiously, so we could now be talking. Vito listened to Jonah and Lily talk. As Jonah described the inside of the fish for the hundredth time, he was about to interrupt, but then thought better of it. If the complete fool is prophet, thought Vito, then the kid's got to be at least half an oracle. And so, like his mother, his father, and God in heaven, he leaned back and watched in silence. On Wiretap today, you heard Jonathan Goldstein reading the story of Jonah and the Great Fish from his book, Ladies and Gentlemen, the Bible. Wiretap is produced by Jonathan Goldstein with Mira Bertwintonic and Crystal Duhame. 
Tune into Wiretap Saturday at 1.30 and Thursday evening at 11.30. You can also hear Wiretap across North America on Sirius Satellite Radio 137. Or subscribe to the podcast through our website at cbc.ca slash wiretap, where you can also download the latest Wiretap ringtone. I am good at being in a fish. Better than most. Impress passers-by with proclamations they will never be able to confirm or deny with every ring of your phone. Jonah was a man, got a word from the Lord. Go and preach the gospel to a sinful land. But he got on a ship and he tried to get away. And he ran into a storm in the middle of the sea. Now the Lord, he made the wave just to roll so high. The ship began to sink. And they all begin to cry. So they pulled old Jonah out of the hole and they chomped him in the water just to lighten up the load. Now the Lord made a whale long and wide. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? And he swallowed up Jonah, hair and hide. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? Jonah started to pray in the belly of the whale. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? He repented of his sins like a man in jail. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? Mm-hmm. Lord, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Lord. Now Jonah must have been a bad man. He must have been a sinner. Cause when the whale got him down, he didn't like his dinner. Lord, Lord, what man of fish? Mm-hmm. Lord, mm-hmm. Lord. Well, he swam around the ocean, sick as he could be. Lord. Lord.